America, the fastest growing religious perspective is something called the nuns. Now, the nuns is spelled N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. America hasn't seen a sudden surge of women converting to Catholicism, taking vows of celibacy, or entering covens. Instead, America has seen a sudden surge of people who are walking away from religious faith altogether. I'm Jillian Brown. Welcome to Reasonable Faith, a podcast dedicated to thinking hard about the most important questions there are to ask. What reasons are there to believe in God? According to Ryan Burge, a political scientist at Eastern Illinois University and author of the book The Nuns, Where They Come From, Who They Are, and Where They're Going, in the 1970s, the nuns were just 5% of the population. Now, they're about 30% of the population. Surprisingly rapidly, Americans are leaving faith in God and choosing to adopt instead an unbelieving posture. The nuns are people who have chosen not to affiliate with any religious group. While some nuns do believe in God and are merely hostile to organized religion, a great many of the nuns don't believe in God at all. This is particularly true of the rising generations. While the nuns make up 30% of the population of America as a whole, in Gen Z, that number looks more like 40%. This is happening to America, and it's happening very fast. So many people are walking away from faith, and the current trajectory of America has us quickly becoming a nation made up of mostly post-Christian people. These aren't folks who have never heard of the Christian story or the Christian God. These are people who think they know that story and have decided that it is irrelevant. For too many of my generation, the idea of God is an idea that doesn't seem capable of standing up to critical scrutiny particularly in an increasingly secular environment. But are they right? Is the idea of God something that belongs in the antiquated and bigoted past? Have we grown beyond God? Or is it possible that my generation is missing something? Is it possible that the idea of God is still one worth thinking about? The question, is there a God, is a really big question. Perhaps the most important question in all human philosophy, because the implications of the answers are so very big. If there is a God, then all kinds of life priorities become clear, and others become insignificant. If God doesn't exist, then the same things happen, but the priorities are entirely different. Maybe this is worth investigating. Is thinking about the idea of God deeply something that my generation can do? Are there any good reasons to believe in God? In this introductory episode, I'm going to do what I will do in each episode. I'm going to call my dad, Dr. Ethan Brown. He usually makes really hard things a lot easier to understand. At least, he does for me. As you listen to our conversations... I hope he does that for you, too. Today, we're going to start asking these questions, and I think I'll ask him about the field of Christian apologetics. So, Dad, what is the field of Christian apologetics? Well, first of all, it's not about making an apology like you're saying you're sorry. 
Um, you, when you hear the word apologetics, a lot of people think that's somebody who's like ashamed of something that they believe, and they're they're saying, "Okay, well, sorry that we did these things." That's not what an apology is, in the classical sense. Um, one of the most famous apologies was written by Plato, and it's called the Apology of Socrates. And uh, in that, Socrates is on trial for his life because he's stirred up the youth, and they accuse him of being an atheist because he's said some things about the gods that suggest maybe there's just one god, um, and it wears a whole bunch of different faces, and, and people are upset with him, and he's making an apology. But his apology isn't, wow, I'm really sorry I did those things. His apology is a defense where he's saying, well, here's why the things you're saying about me aren't true, and here's the truth about me. So he's giving a defense and a statement of truth about himself. Rather than being like apologetic, like, oh, I, I didn't mean to offend you, he's giving an apologetic, like, and you're telling lies about me, let me tell you the truth. Christian apologetics is uh, using the word apology like that. It's saying, okay, well, let's make the argument for truth about our faith. We're saying not, we're really sorry that we're Christians, but let's show you why Christianity is real and valid and true. When we think about apologetics, what kinds of things are we looking at? Well, it depends. Uh, if a person considers the Bible to be an authoritative book, then you do one kind of argument. There's a whole bunch of things that you can show them within the Bible to convince them about the truth of Christianity. If not, well, then you look at other kinds of arguments. So what kinds of things would use the Bible to make an apologetic argument for the truth of Christian faith? There are things like the divinity claims of Jesus. Um, you've got to do something with those. Jesus does things like forgive people's sins. You know, there's one healing where people dig through the roof of a house, which, you know, would have been made of maybe tiles or, or straw or something. They dig through and they lower this paralytic guy down. And it's the text says, when Jesus saw their face, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room who's not already a close friend of Jesus is like, whoa, he can't do that. Um, you know, only God can forgive sins. And they're right about that. I mean, like, okay, so say I were to say to you, Jillian, your sins are forgiven. Well, you know, that's crazy because you're, I can forgive every sin you've ever done that hurt me. But how do I forgive the sins that you did that hurt somebody else? Uh, I can't forgive you for that person. And if that person doesn't forgive you, how can I say you're forgiven? Or the sins that you did that hurt yourself. You know, those kinds of things, eh, I got no right to forgive you. But there is one person that is hurt by all of our sins, and that would be God. And God would have the right to do that. So Jesus is claiming that. And they're right to think, oh, he's saying he's God. Uh, they're just wrong to think that he isn't God. Um so the, but the Gospels are all unified. He did things like that. He claimed to forgive sins. Some people would like to say, well, Jesus is just a really, really good teacher, and I like him a lot. But the only reason they would have to think he's a good teacher are the Gospel records. 
if you accept the gospel records, show him as a good teacher, you also got to deal with the fact that he claimed to forgive sins. Or he said things like, you know, people were arguing with him, and, and he said one time, well, before Abraham was, I am. There are all kinds of reasons why that's a problematic statement. Saying, I am, uh, is, a, is like quoting another part of the Bible where God says, well, this is what my name is. My name is I am. But he's also a guy not even 30 years old claiming to have lived before Abraham. And he's making divinity claims. A person who does that is either crazy or they're like something much, much worse than crazy. They know they're not God, but they're claiming to be so they can manipulate and hurt people. Um, people in either of those camps tend to get their followers killed. You know, think of like David Koresh, you know, maybe crazy, maybe evil. I'm not sure which, but anyway, everybody died. They do that or he actually is who he's saying he is. So that's kind of an argument from interior to the Bible. You know, the kinds of things that, that only make sense if Jesus is God. And so it forces you to make that choice. I either accept the story or I don't. You know, he's claiming to be God. I can't be with him just as he's a really nice guy and his followers messed it up because, you know, he makes these claims that push me away from he's a nice guy towards either he's crazy or he's evil or he's somebody I have to deal with. So is there one big thing that all hangs on? So the most central claim of Christianity would be the resurrection. Um, and if you wanted to talk with somebody that isn't a Christian and try and talk with them about this faith, that's the thing it all hangs on. If that happened, then, you know, that, that changes everything. If Jesus came back from the dead, then and nobody's ever done that except him. You know, people have been, I suppose, in the biblical story, people are raised from the dead, but they die again. Jesus was resurrected in some way that's different and unique, and he'll never die again. And if that's what happened, then that story, the whole story, in fact, I would suggest the whole Bible hangs on that one event. If that happened, then I accept the Bible is true. And if it didn't, it's a really, really good piece of literature, but you know, it's fiction. So it all hangs there. But if it's fiction, there's some really weird things about it. Like, for instance, if you wanted to convince everybody that uh, the resurrection happened and you were making it up, you'd want to make sure that that every bit of evidence you could throw at this looked good and solid, and especially in the culture you were trying to convince. Well, in the first century Hebrew culture, women couldn't give testimony in court. Women weren't considered to be reliable sources. Now, I know that's, you know, that's offensive to our modern sensibilities. I'm not even arguing that they're right. I'm arguing that's how it was. In the ancient world, a woman couldn't give testimony in court because women were not considered to be reliable. They were hysterical and so forth, uneducated. You know, why would you listen to a woman? So if you wanted to convince people that something that had never happened before and, and something amazing and world-changing happened, the last thing you'd do is make up witnesses that were unreliable. 
but the first people to witness the resurrection, those were all women. You know, Mary goes to the tomb and is crying, and Jesus talks to her, and she thinks he's the gardener and his, wants his body back. He says, Mary, and she says, Rabboni, and runs and hugs him. And he's like, don't hold on to me. You can't do that. That whole story that's in the Gospel of John right at the end, that whole story puts, in fact, the, the Gospels are all unified. The first people to see Jesus alive were women. And they go tell the apostles about it, and they don't believe them. You know, why would you do that if you were making it up? Why put this most important thing into the mouths of witnesses that nobody would trust or believe? Unless that's what happened. You know, there's, there's internal evidence like that that suggests the resurrection happened. I'll tell you, one of the most convincing things for me is uh, that the people who came up with this story, if they came up with it, if it didn't happen to them, they made it up, they all died for it. All but one of them died terrible, awful, brutal deaths. One of them was filleted alive, which means that his skin was peeled off while he was still breathing. Uh, one of them was boiled. Uh, a few of them were crucified. It, all they had to do, if they made it up, all they had to do was stop telling the story and just say, okay, we made it up, and they get their life back. And I think people will die for things they believe and things that they believe are worth dying for. But nobody dies for a lie that they know is a lie. But those guys all did. You know, it all hangs on that, and they believed it. Yeah, and because they did, well, I think I do too. These arguments are all great. Is there anything outside the Bible? Well, there's a couple of kinds of those. There's the argument that is like, is the Bible reliable? And there are several arguments that can be made to try and shore up the biblical record. You know, get people to accept that, okay, this isn't just a fairy tale written by creative people this is historical and interacts with history um for instance um there are a lot of uh i, I say a lot there are several uh people who wrote about jesus outside the bible from our perspective well jesus is a world-changing person but if you go back to the first century perspective Jesus is a nobody. He's a first century carpenter. So the idea that he would show up in anybody's writing outside of uh, the people that cared about him is surprising, but he does. He's referenced in Josephus. And there are a lot of people that think maybe there's a, a Christian hand editing what, what Josephus wrote about Jesus. But, and maybe that's true, but at least at least it starts with Josephus. And uh, there's other Jewish writers. It appears in, uh, in rabbinic literature. Uh, he makes several appearances. Um, and then there's arguments from things like archaeology or numismatics. Uh, numismatics is the study of ancient coins. There's a stone in Corinth that references a guy as being in exactly the office that the book of Acts says he's in. Or I one time heard a defense of uh, the story of Joshua. A lot of people suggest that the, the story of Israel coming and taking over what they called the promised land, that that was all a made-up story. And really, it, it was invented and written by people 
you know, shortly before exile, and none of that even happened. Well, I heard an archaeologist uh, talk about a dig that he did where he dug up an, an ancient village in the hill country and had found a garbage heap. And what he found was that at different strata, there were different things that were showing up. And at a certain point, and up to a certain point in each stratum, there were pig bones. But when you hit a certain point, all of the pig bones disappeared and they never showed up again. Um, and what he was saying was this, this stratum right here uh, correlates with the time of Joshua. And so what you had was people who were not Jews living in this village and using this garbage dump up to this point. And then right here, you see these pig bones vanish. It's because Jews don't eat pigs. And so from this point on, you've got Hebrew people living here. Um, things like that keep showing up. Um, the, the, the amount of archaeological proof that suggests that the text is, is reliable and relevant, you know, that's, there's tons of that kind of thing. But uh, then there are things we use, apologetics, that are kind of outside of the Bible altogether. You know, if a person doesn't know whether they believe in God, then... Well, then they, they probably, even those arguments are probably not real persuasive because the Bible is not the place they need to start. The place they need to start is more philosophical, that don't use the Bible at all. Okay, so what are those? Okay, well, philosophical arguments are given in response to the idea that belief in God is silly or irrational or just entirely silly. If a person doesn't believe in God, well, the Bible's not going to be real useful because why would a person accept anything in what we say is a divinely inspired book if they don't believe in divinity? Um, philosophical arguments answer the idea that it's irrational to believe in God by saying, well, no, it isn't. No, there are rational reasons to believe in God that people have found compelling across the ages. And uh, very often people who reject belief in God have not really considered it at a philosophical level. And so looking at these arguments, they sometimes can be persuasive. I find them very hard to refute. So what kinds of things are those? Well, maybe, Jillian, it'd be good if you went and did some research. You know, you could talk to folks that know a lot more about them than I do, but I guess a good place to start might be the argument from the first cause or the uncaused cause, or it's sometimes called the argument of the first mover. Go look into that. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. In the next episodes, I will be looking into a variety of arguments for a necessary existence. Come with me as we explore why it is reasonable to believe in God.